Well, good morning. Good morning, church. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. We're about to praise the name of Jesus. So if you're able, uh, would you stand and lift, lift our voices?
may be seated. Let us pray. Oh, my great and powerful God, I am sorry I have let this world beat me down and twist your words. I let this world censor me regarding your word, and for that I am truly sorry. Please bless Kathy and your church for allowing me this prayer on judgment and a new awakening with a deep dive into your wisdom on the subject. Lord, help us to not make judgments based on our wisdom, on our rationalizations. Help us to look at things not through the eyes of the world. Help us to look at these things and make determinations based on your word. Not a condemning, judgmental, overly critical attitude, but a decision nonetheless. For the Bible is living, active, and relative every day from the beginning to the end of every life. It does not change. Please hear our prayer and help us to not be self-righteous and arrogant, but to have your biblical view, speaking the truth in love. Help us, Lord, for personally it is difficult for me to do. Help me to know that you love all people the way you love me, regardless of their circumstances or what they have done. Please put the words in my mouth when your truth needs to be displayed so they are smothered in love when they are spoken. Lord, please don't let us think that your commands regarding the judgment of others is a universal acceptance of all lifestyles or teachings. Help us to understand the Christian is allowed to show unconditional love, but the Christian is not called to unconditional approval. Help us to not break your commands by only speaking to others of their faults, judging an entire life only by its worst moments, judging the hidden motives of others, judging others without considering ourselves in the same circumstances, judging others without being mindful that we ourselves will be judged. Help us to understand we should not seek to correct a person when we are guilty of the same or another offense, that we need to deal with our own sin and then we can help someone else. Lord, you make a good example of this kind of hypocrisy with David's reaction to Nathan's story about a man who stole and killed another man's lamb. David quickly condemned the man but was blind to his own sin, which was much greater. Lord, Lord, this world thinks if we agree with them, we are open-minded, but if we disagree, we are judgmental, censoring Christians into silence, losing our ability to speak into the world, confusing disagreement with condemnation. Lord, you never intended that we should set aside all exercise of discernment or judgment. Help us read the Bible with the eye of faith, with an understanding heart, with godly discernment, and in its correct context, and let us apply it in our lives in spirit and in truth. Let us flee from any form of unrighteous judgment, hypocritical conclusions, sanctimonious reasonings, and destructive criticisms. Let us hold fast to sound doctrine and seek to walk worthy with you, Lord. Open our hearts so we totally rely on you to give us insight and understanding into your word. Help us to love your knowledge and depth of insight. Be with us in examining and knowing your word so we may discern the quality of another's words and deeds while keeping in mind that ultimately you, God, alone know the motives and intent of a person's heart. Dear God, please pump us full of the Holy Spirit and give us the strength and the power and the love to increase your moral penetration in this world. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We are so glad to have you with us, uh, worshiping with us this morning. 
Uh, just a quick reminder, on your way inside, you should have received a uh, bulletin. Um, and on the bulletin, we have both a prayer card and connect card. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we invite you to take a moment and fill out that Connect card. That helps us get to know you and helps you stay in touch um, and keep up to date with uh, events at LJCC. And also on the opposite side, we have a prayer card that says, let us pray for you. Um, if you or anybody you know needs prayer, uh, we invite you to also take a, a second, fill out that prayer card. And um, after the service, uh, you can drop these cards along with any tithes and offerings into the box on the wall um, by the entrance or the baskets in the foyer. And with that, I'd like to invite up Pastor Steve for a message. Thank you. Hey, would you just take a moment to look around and say hello to the people seated next to you? You don't have to touch them. You don't have to cough on them or anything. Just uh, wish them a good morning. Say hello to them. So what do you think? How, how did it go? What did you think of those people? <laughs> if you had to evaluate them, not that we would, but if you had to evaluate them, uh, what, what, would you, what would you come up with? You, I'm just wondering, just a quick, honest question, just among friends, make you feel comfortable. Um, years ago, uh, actually when I was in seminary, there's a fellow who had a lot of influence on me. He was kind of a mentor and a great guy named Neil Warren. And he started a thing, he, he wrote this book, called Finding the Love of Your Life. He became a runaway New York Times bestseller, and you know, he's a full-time professor in the School of Psychology at Fuller Seminary, and he just didn't have time to be running around speaking at a zillion conferences. And, and so uh, they did, at the end of the day, you know, videos and all kinds of things. Finally, he said, you know, I'm going to create an online company. He's a super entrepreneurial guy, and so he created a, a company called eHarmony. It was the first of the dating um, portals, the original name was already taken. That was, you, are you kidding me? That was the name of the original, I thought. But um, eHarmony, the idea was connecting with people and somehow not judging them. Now, I, I am all for uh, dating portals. I think it's a brilliant thing because how do, you, how do you connect with people? How do you meet them? You know, once you get out of school where it's easier and you're out in the world, where, how do you meet? So I think it's fantastic. The tricky thing is, though, it's, it's like a brutal experience if you're feeling judged. Would you not ag agree? I mean, it's, it's just the idea of being judged by somebody. And, and if you've ever walked into a room and somebody turned around and excited, and they go, oh, it's you. And you go, oh, oh ow, oh. You look behind, you know, who, who are you expecting, you know? Uh, oh, or when you're in a social situation, you somehow in the first few minutes have to come up with all the reasons you're okay and why it's really awesome we get, you get to talk to me. Um, I mean, you could right now be sitting adjacent to people who, if you took the time, got the time to know them, they would change your life. And it might be for the better. You never know. It could be, no. It would be for the better because you'd start to hear their story and you start to think, wow, we have so much in common. I had no idea. Um, just sta standing here looking at this room, I could pick out things about you and say, you know, there's a bunch of people like you and they're sitting over there, 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 there. Uh, there was one, it was like about six months ago, I, I was standing up here and I happened to look over and uh, like this whole side of the, of the room was filled with people in the sciences. I thought, was it like a pheromone they had that they were all attracted to <laughs> sit next to each other? And I saw four people adjacent in, in successive rows who all went to MIT, different generations of MIT. And I thought, 
this is too funny, you know, because we just don't know. We don't know people's story. We don't know how it'll change or impact our story. Uh, I want to start with this scripture. It's irrelevant. I think there's some scriptures that should not be in the Bible because I don't get why they're there. There's no practical... Oh, wait. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others... This is not going well. This is really not going well. You will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, it really bums me out when people judge me on my behavior and my lack of character. I want them to judge me on my good intentions. <laughs> Don't you? We want to be evaluated for, I tried so hard. And sometimes we don't even know the unexpressed expectations of what people are using to evaluate us. And if you've grown up in a critical family or if you had a critical presence of somebody important in your life, really, you know, do a number on you because they were so critical that, um, you know, if Jesus showed up and said he walked on water, they go, well, how far? <laughs> you know, there'd be an element of judgment in anything that they would consider. Uh, one time, one of the most vulnerable times of my life, in the sense that I, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I, 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 I was finishing up a degree in business, and I thought maybe I'd go to a seminary because some people said you should do that if you have nothing else going on in your life. No, they said, you know, you're doing all these things around what you're majoring in and what you're working on that really have to do with um, stuff that you might get some help from in seminary. I didn't know what a seminary was. And so they explained it. I said, well, I'm not, I really am not interested in being a pastor. And he said, no, no, you don't have to be a pastor. They just, you just go learn all these interesting things. And really, I wanted to be a history major, not a business major. But I thought, well, it's more practical. And so I thought, well, there, you get to study all these interesting languages and history and that kind of thing. And so uh, this church was going said, hey, you know, uh, would you be willing to run our youth program for the summer? And I'm probably, you know, 22, and, and I said, okay, what do I need to do? And I said, well, you know, you're a volunteer young life leader, right? Said, yeah. Well, just do that, and, and you, you know how we do study school, just speak and all that, and okay. And that's about all he told me. And so I, I, I thought, well, I, what should I do? I, I recruited... 20 college students to be my staff. Uh, this, is, this is, you know, the equivalent of Tom Sawyer asking his 20 friends to paint the fence or something, you know. No, really what it was is that he said, let's be a team and let's just go out and reach these kids. They have all this time, let's just do, back then you had a lot more time. And so we had this phenomenal summer. We did mission trips, we did spiritual retreats, we did adventure, uh, you know, all kinds of, it's amazing. And at the end of the summer, the guy, the associate pastor, who is my boss, who I'd never met with all summer, uh, I seen him the first day. They gave me an office. I went and fixed it up, and then I never went back to it. And I, but I was out doing all the stuff. And so I meet with the guy, and he goes, you know, I'm really disappointed in how the summer went. I'm like, I was crushed. Because I so much wanted to get it right, and I didn't really know how to get it right, but I got it the rightest I thought I, I could get it. And he said, I said, well, what happened? Why? And he said, well, you were never in your office. And my office was down in a basement where nobody could find it anyway. I said, wow, yeah, you're right. Well, I was there once, you know, uh, and, and he said, yeah, and you never sent in any reports. It's true. Okay, I'm 0 for 2. I was just so bummed out. Later that day, I saw these people who were significant mentors in my life. I was going over to have dinner with them, 
And they said, hey, how'd your day go? I said, you know, not, not, not that well, actually. I had a meeting with this guy, and they knew him really well. And they were super leaders in this church, and really mature Christians. She's a psychotherapist. She's this physician who had been a missionary. You know, he started the whole medical system in Cameroon. I mean, he's an amazing dude. And I, I said, what happened? And I explained it. They started laughing. And I said, but that was, wasn't really funny. <laughs> and they go, no, this is ridiculous. And then they started just off the top of their head, a list of all the stuff that had happened that summer. And I was even convinced. I said, yeah, it was an awesome summer, wasn't it? They said, Steve, it was the best summer we've ever had here. And it wasn't wasn't because of me. It was because all of us together could do what none of us alone could do. And so the withering, that that, uh, acrid, tsunami, drowning, overwhelming, parching, Santa Ana wind, I mean, pick every, every analogy you can think of, metaphor, that, that swept over me in that meeting, I thought, this is, what a different day. Well, they took this guy aside and just said, hey, I, 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 you know, I didn't get all the details from Steve, but I understood you evaluated him. Tell me your take on this summer. And he repeated the things, and they said, where were you this summer? And, and he, he realized, yeah, I guess I completely missed that. You know? And now I have been judged and evaluated in ways that were critical and needed to be. But in this case, it was just so out there, but I didn't have any context for it. Most of us don't really have a context for the judgment that sweeps across the world and into our world. And so we just get caught up in it. I'm gonna, this is a pop quiz. How many, how many elected or appointed federal judges are there in the United States at all levels of federal government? 1,700. How many state judges are there across the United States? Elected or appointed? 30,000. How many unelected and unappointed judges are there in the United States? 331 million. And worldwide, the number bumps up to 7.888 billion people are unelected and unappointed, but expert judges of other people. Can you relate to this? Of course you can. It doesn't take much to understand that there are individuals and groups of people who spend all their time judging and assessing some kind of a verdict and even bullying and trying to diminish another person or another group. Uh, the newspapers fill this. Wars are built around this. I, you know, we all know. If we just took time and said, give us an example, give us another example. It would be the most depressing moment because we would say, yeah, that too. Oh, yeah. We talk about bullying kids on campuses. You know, well, what, what do adults call it? I just had a very critical and enlightened analysis of you. And, and where does this come from? You know, well, it's, it's a pecking order thing. And I, I want to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever raised chickens? Or watched? There you go. A, a good farmer in our presence. And... And aren't they not the smartest creatures on the planet? <laughs> oh. Chickens, the pecking order. What's going on there? It's, it's like that musical that's now 15 million people have seen the music, uh, musical in London, We Will Rock You. It's coming back to London this summer. The, the ticket's already practically sold out for the London Coliseum and all these other venues. And, you know, the big song, We Will, We Will Rock You. This is what chickens... I, we had chickens, and... 
and we had some horses and chickens and things, and I went, went out one time, I heard this. And it's all the chickens lined up going, we will, we will rank you. And that's what pecking order is. It's chickens ranking other chickens, and they peck at them. They go, I don't like that feather, peck. Oh, there's another one, peck, peck, peck. And pretty soon, literally, it's, it's gross. You go out there, and there's a dead chicken. And you're thinking, what happened? What happened to the chicken? What was wrong with that chicken? Well, it, it, was, it didn't end up with all the rankings. And this is what we do. Now, here's the crazy thing about chicken psychology. Did you even know there was such a field as chicken psychology? Chickens get more agitated, and the pecking order intensifies when they are, you can imagine, bored. This is literally the research. Chickens can get bored. And when chickens get bored, they peck harder at other chickens. When there's nothing going on in a chicken's life, now you, this amount sounds ridiculous until you go, wait, it sounds like people. Oh my gosh, what a, what a, what a connection. When chickens get bored, they, they are more destructive in the pecking order. When chickens are stressed, they get more aggressive in the, in the pecking order. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you think chickens. Uh, I had no idea. It was such, it's so hard to be a chicken. When they're undernourished, you know, they haven't got enough sleep or enough food, they peck harder. It sounds like people, doesn't it? What drives our judgment? We want to talk about that and unpack that a little bit. Uh, not to rub salt in the wounds that all of us have, but to say, why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say this? And what was, where was he going with it? Because we know justice requires a system of judges, the legal system, all that's great. But what about this unofficial system that really runs the world? It insinuates itself into the legal system at all levels as well. So the first big idea of the morning is this. Jesus calls out our habit of judging one another. He calls out our habit, our habitual propensity for judging one another, to participate in this pecking order of we are self-appointed, self-elected rankers of other people. And he's speaking here about the toxic way we blame and critique one another. And we assign some level of guilt and responsibility for what we'll get to. And so we assume the right and the authority to express our frustration with this imperfect world. A world that leaves us hungry and restless and bored and stressed and anxious. And so we do what we naturally do. We externalize that and we go, hmm, I know why. Your job is to make me happy. I'm not happy. You are not doing your job. Peck, 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 peck. I've done hundreds and hundreds of weddings, and what I always say, you know, as part of the vows, will you, you and you, promise from this day forth to annoy and harass each other over not being happy? And they all go, absolutely, I'm all over that. We've been practicing. We're very good at that. Had a lot of experience previously dating people. We're all over that. It's so normal. It's so much of who we are. But what, it, what is going on here? It's a mix of idealism, I wish the world were right, and self-righteousness, because I'm right. I might be the only right thing in this world. It's also heartache, but it's been really hard in this world for me. And it's also a sense of yearning. I wish the world was a different place. I wish it was a different, better place. And after a long, you know, sad litany of gripes and accusations, we finally get to ourselves and go, and yeah, 
actually, I'm not right with the world either. And the world in me isn't right. But I don't know what to do about it. But I'm an expert at judging you. Every one of us in this room, because of what we do professionally, can give expert advice to people. And yet when we start talking about our own lives, we go, wow, I'm kind of at sea over this one. I'm not, right, not really as good as, at it. So it's a mashup of assumptions and, uh, and expectations and aspirations, uh, attitudes and ambitions about life. All good. I want my life to be better. I want to have a better marriage than my parents did. I want to have a better family. I want to have a good family. I want to have a great career. I don't want to be in a dead end. I, I want to do this and that. I want this to happen. I want to live in a country where these are the qualities. I want to see people relate in these ways. I want to, and so it's all good. There's nothing down, there's no downside to all these good things. It's just that they're out of reach. And so our, our judgmental attitudes are birthed in, in hopes and dreams and yes, fantasies. It'll be perfect once we're married. Once the baby's here, all these babies in the, these babies in the back there, life is so easy now. <laughs> once you have the baby, it is so easy. Um, I have never thought of joining the French Foreign Legion, but about a month ago, I was with a five-year-old for a, an entire day, which felt like an entire month. We had the best time, but at the end of the day, I was so exhausted, and the five-year-old goes, now what do you want to do? I'm thinking, what I'd like to do, if it still exists, is join the French Foreign Legion, because trudging through the deserts of Algeria would be much easier than trying to come up with one more thing, you know. No, of course. It's all aspirations and desires for a life that is good, safe, free, and fulfilling. Does that sound good to you? Does that sound unreasonable to you? No, it's not unreasonable. It's very good. Those are all the right aspirations and hopes and dreams and yearnings. Nobody gets married saying, this is really going to be bad. I can't wait. Nobody says, ah, I had all these job opportunities. I took the one that would make me most miserable. No, we all are saying, ah, oh, this is going to be really good. And if people say, I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do, no, no, you don't even know. It's going to be so good. And so all this stuff is distorted by hurt and fear, comparing, competing, complaining about the disappointments of real everyday life. But if you've been at it a while, you get very subtle about it because you realize if you're too whiny and moany, it's easy to see you and avoid you. And so what we do is we get very subtle about it. And, and it's more, hey, did you notice that, hey, I'm wondering if, and all of a sudden you get this kind of ninja effect where you're, you're, you're judging people and they don't even know it, and, but there's an unease and a disease, and, and all of a sudden there's a dissonance, and you're going, what is going on here? What's what I'm being, I'm being pecked to death. It might not even be your spouse, it just might be you. Your spouse might be awesome, but you're going, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not living up to it. I'm, I'm not, I'm. So you're the one doing it to you, right? And so judging is how I and how you externalize and assign to others our unhappiness about the state of the world that we live in and the state of the world as it affects us internally. We're just not satisfied. And we want the problems of a fallen and sinful world to be resolved by someone somehow now. And that's why we keep judging. We keep, as they say, keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a better and different outcome. Now, Jesus said that judging is not our job, which is so true. Can you agree with this? And yet, it is our favorite hobby. <laughs> no, it is not my job. I do this voluntarily. 
it's a righteous volunteer thing that I'm doing. Over and above my normal obligations and responsibilities, I am a voluntary, perpetual uh, judge. Why? Because, I, again, I so desperately want to make sense of life. If only this or that had or hadn't happened. So I review all of what you do and don't do. And eventually get to mine. It's just a horrible mashup. I want a rational explanation for irrationality, don't you? I want to make something rational out of something irrational. I remember one time dealing with a very complicated situation as a young pastor in Newport Beach, and this wise guy, super wise guy, uh, not a wise guy in, a, in, in the smart alecky way, but just super wise man and a very funny guy. He's listening to me, and he said, you know, you know what your problem is? I said, well, where do you want to start? Of course, you know, he said, no, your problem is you keep lapsing into rationality. You've analyzed this perfectly, you have a great solution, but you're dealing with people, therefore it is irrational. I'm like, ah. Oh. And I say that to myself to this day, I go, you know, I'm Steve, you're lapsing into rationality. We want a reason for the unreasonable. It's a fallen world. And the very first people that were responsible for that blamed each other. That was the starting point. And they blamed God. <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Ah, thank you so much for clarifying that. So here, here's the point. Judging is not constructive. What? It is not your superpower. It is not a solution. It is not helpful. Can we all agree on that? Judging is not helpful at all. Yes, but I do it for your benefit. <laughs> if you only realized how helpful this could be for you. No. Let me repeat. It's not constructive. It's not a superpower. It's not a solution. It is not helpful. How many people have told you that they have benefited immensely from you judging them? I'll, I'll, take, I'll wait as long as you need to make the list. I know it's a long one. No, zero. How have you or I benefited from being judged by people? Zero. Nobody likes being judged. Everybody likes being understood. Big difference, right? Nobody likes being judged. Everybody likes being understood. Now, by being understood, I don't mean indulged. Oh, you're beautiful, you're perfect. It couldn't be better. I'm saying people just want to be understood. We all want to have that version of, you get me. C.S. Lewis said, you know when you've met a true friend because you look at each other and you both consciously or unconsciously, out loud or silently say, you too. Oh, you too. We have a real bond. We relate to each other. We understand each other. So judging adds no value, but understanding and constructive feedback lifts us up to see a better way. Uh, the guy that was, was so harsh in his evaluation of my summer internship you know, apologized immensely. And he goes, I don't know, man. My mind was just in this other place about uh, whatever I was thinking. But you're right. I, I missed the whole point. Now, the funny thing was the people who intervened uh, were people who were amazingly helpful in understanding me and speaking into my life. And they could say critical things to me. They could say corrective things to me. And it was a gift. It was like a glass of cold water 
uh, uh, in the desert. It was just a gift. You know, that's why the, the Proverbs say that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. You can look that up in my Proverbs 14 or 17. Somewhere between Proverbs 1 and 30. It's right in there somewhere. Uh, so uh, this is what great parents and grandparents and friends and teachers, mentors, bosses, coaches, and leaders do. They understand us, and then they say, let me speak the truth to you in love. And let me help be part of a constructive response to this situation. And we can say no, but we'll always know that they were right. And at some point, maybe years later, we'll come back to them and say, you know, you were so right and I was so wrong. I was so pig-headed and hard-hearted, I just wouldn't receive what you were giving me as a gift. So we can become wise and discerning if we're vulnerable enough to learn from the Lord and from other people. That's why I say if if we only knew the people seated around us, we'd say, wow, these are people made in the image of God, being redeemed in Him, if they believe in Him, who have immense wisdom to offer to me and encourage to give to me, uh, encouragement that would benefit me in taking steps to be more vulnerable and more daring and learning how to grow. Because this is really what it's about. It's about growing out of our desire to, uh, to control the world or to be coddled by it. But to do that, we need to get real about our own limits, our blind spots, our fears, our faults, our failures. And that's why Jesus, in the next part of this scripture, goes on to say this. Why, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. It's a ridiculously grotesque, funny, you know, it's like a political cartoon. You know, everything is over-exaggerated. You see a guy walking in, he's got this log in his eye. Years ago, I knew a guy who was a phenomenal guitar player, musician. He wrote a song called Log Eye. He wrote it like a country western song. And, and he, he, he took the theme from Rawhide, the old TV show, Rawhide, it was a log eye. You know, it's a, it was wickedly funny. Uh, and every time I read this passage, I think of this guy, Paul Aldrich, and his song, Logi. And so Jesus says, how can you say to your brother or your sister, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So having just said, don't judge, he's saying, but you can't help. You're not a very good judge, but you really could be of some help. And so Jesus calls us to recognize our need for healing so that we can stop judging and start helping. And helping isn't when you mug somebody and say, I'm going to take charge of your life. Helping is when you've, you've built enough credibility and you've earned the right to be heard, and you say, hey, I've been watching you deal with this, and you're doing a, a great job in many ways. I just, it just doesn't seem to be resolving. How could I help? Is there any way I could help? And so Jesus calls us from superiority, I'm judging you, to empathy, I care about you. From arrogant self-assurance, you know, I know what's going on here. To humble self-awareness. Man, you too, I struggle like that every day. So here's the second point. If the first is that Jesus calls out our habit of judging one another, our version of the deadly picking order, here's the big idea number two that follows. Congratulations, you've been promoted by Jesus from hypocrite to disciple. You've been upgraded. You've been promoted into a new category of being. You no longer have to have the weight of the world on your shoulders as a hypocrite. Instead, you can take the yoke of Jesus upon yourself because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And you can learn from him and find the shalom of God in him.
That's a pretty great promotion. 24-7, the Holy Spirit, a gift from Jesus, the Word of God, a gift from Jesus, the people of God, a gift from Jesus, walking with you. So hypocrites can't see or accept what, who what the, and what they really are. But disciples discover their true identity in Christ. You're a beloved child of God. Yeah, but. There's no yeah buts. You can describe problems and deficits and defects in your character and in your behavior. That's not a but to the fact that you're a beloved child of God. You are a beloved child of God. And here's some issues in your life. You're a beloved child of God. And here's some things that aren't working very well in your life. You're a beloved child of God. And here's some things that you're doing fabulously well, uh, but over-functioning to the point that there's a lot of things that are not being addressed. That's one of the things we do. We overcompensate. We function at a high level here, and we just don't do it here. Now, the idea is not to be perfect at everything and do everything all the time, but to say, what are my priorities? How do I sort things out? I mean, if, if everybody's honest, uh, uh, most, and I said this last week, you know, every dad has this nagging feeling like, I just wasn't there enough. And moms now can have that same feeling. They're doing all the mom stuff, and then they're also working. And there's a sense of, oh, man. Where does that come from? Well, it's this idea that I'm supposed to be doing everything perfectly. And then you read a book like Lean In. You go, really? Okay. So the idea is, if, you, if I can't spend most of my hours as a dad of young kids with my kids, what kind of time am I, I going to spend with them? Because there is some level of, you know, it's not just quality, it's quality and quantity, so how do I make that work? I've got to go to work. I've got to do my work. Uh, we have to figure out how to do all these other Commitments we made. But the question is, how do we sort that out? And this becomes the wisdom and discernment of a disciple. A disciple doesn't just spend all their time um, you know, in, in the presence of God's glory, in the sense that they're waiting for something awesome to happen. They're out there living their, their regular life in the presence of God in His glory, saying, Lord, how do, I, how do I deal with this? How do I learn to say yes and no appropriately? How do I learn boundaries? Boundaries aren't ways to shove people away and keep them out. That wonderful book, Boundaries, by Cloud and Townsend, is simply saying, how do we order our lives, not by rules and regulations, but by a rhythm of fulfilling our commitments and, our, and, and, and living into, leaning into, in that sense, our priorities. Not apologizing, I've got to go to work, I've got to get on a plane, I've got to go, I, have to, I can't play with you right now. But how am I living a life so that those things don't become overwhelming deficits that make me go bankrupt relationally? So we start understanding ourselves. Why do we do what we do? Who and what is motivating us? Maybe you sit down with a counselor and let them help us sort it out. Maybe we start reading more books that talk about how to live your life. I heard a guy one time say, you know, I, I write books for people who don't like to read. And having read some of the guy's books, I said, I get it. I wouldn't read your books. They're fluff. Just fluffy stuff. And then there's books that you could say they look like they're just funny and they're, you know, but you start reading and you go, this is deep. This is letting me through humor or the funny situations access some very profound stuff. Where are you getting the content to help you move from being a hypocrite judging the world to a disciple learning about the world? So we aren't asked to judge the world or save it, but simply care for it under God's authority. We get to recognize that his kingdom has come, and we pray that his will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. It's a new paradigm for living life. 
And one of the biggest breakthroughs in modern science, modern as in the last you know, 80 years, 50 years, was the whole idea of a paradigm shift. That we change the model, we change the way we look at things. So on the writing of science, not doing science, but on the writing of science, a paradigm shift is, it became profoundly important. And of course, the paradigm shift in every industry and technology becomes profoundly important. We're in a paradigm shift moment with AI. Is AI good or bad? Well, are people good or bad? Uh, yes. Well, then AI will be good or bad. <laughs> right? But the paradigm is shifting nonetheless. A financial paradigms, all kinds of paradigms. So the paradigm of a hypocrite produces one kind of a person. The paradigm of a disciple produces another. Because we recognize that God's kingdom has come, we pray that his will would be done, and that on earth we get to live out what's going on in heaven. So the serenity prayer, maybe you've heard of this, a brilliant, a brilliant philosopher, theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. Two brothers came from Germany after World War II to the United States, were brilliant theologians and philosophers, Richard and Reinhold Niebuhr. But, but uh, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this beautiful prayer. God, grant me the serenity. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You're familiar with this serenity prayer. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Wow, what a prayer. That's a disciple's prayer, not a hypocrite's prayer. The hypocrite's prayer is those people, and it goes downhill from there. <laughs> this one, a disciple's prayer, starts with Lord or God or Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, you're right? And so Jesus counsels us in Matthew 7, 1, 6. This is the end of that judging paragraph. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Where does this come from? This is, again, one of those things I read it, I go, I have no idea what that means. But it sounds like somebody is being insulted somewhere. Dogs and, and pigs, okay. What's going on here? He's talking about uh, in a lot of things, but, but one way to, to, to put it in perspective is to say there will be antagonistic people in your life or hard-hearted people, people who don't want to take the message, hey, I'm growing as a disciple. Don't bother me with that stuff. There's some people who are like Roy and Ted Lasso. That's it. If you've seen Ted Lasso and you know who Roy is, there are some people in life who are just Roy. And you don't know when you're going to get through to them at some point, and all of a sudden you realize this person has a heart of gold, that they're protecting it in this rough exterior and keeping everybody at arm's length. <clears throat> if, you, if you start trying to give them stuff that's precious to you, you may as well be giving it to a dog or to a pig. In the sense that the dog and the pig won't appreciate it. Somebody one time said, it must have been a country western singer, you know, you don't want to try to teach a pig how to sing, uh, it, it's frustrating to you, and it definitely annoys the pig. So be wise and discerning in how you confront or how you talk about your life with people. And antagonistic people are toxic and unstable. They're just angry people. They're in that mode where they're judging the world because the world isn't right, and they want it to be righter, but not at their expense. 
They want us to fight them or flee from them. And I can't tell you how many stories of people I've met that are antagonistic that kind of shocked me as a pastor. That shocked me that I thought people were going to be perfect, but that I thought, wow, these people have listened to the gospel for a very long time, apparently. And they've accrued some level of power. And all of a sudden, you see that they are just mean people. And there's no way to, to solve whatever problem they're carrying around with them. And finally, a, a guy named Stephen Haugen who wrote um, uh, this fantastic book, uh, uh, he, 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 he created a thing called the, um, uh, the Stephen Ministries, where you raise up lay counselors. He also wrote a book called um, uh, Antagonists in the Church. How do you deal with antagonistic people? And, and, he, and he basically says, you know, they want us to fight with them or flee from them. They love a fight. They want to pull us in. They want to pull us down in the mud and say, yeah, see? Or they want us to run away. And then they say, see? But our calling is simply to stand strong in the Lord. Not arrogantly, not triumphantly, like I'm better than you, but just to stand strong in the Lord. And to realize their problem is not my problem. But I can care about them in the midst of their problem. And along the way, if I see some problems that I have, I can deal with those too. So we've got to be prepared to speak the truth in love, confronting sin or evil in appropriate ways. So when we say don't judge, we're not saying stop being critical in your thinking about evaluating what's good, bad, right, or wrong. We're saying be wise in how you do that, discerning in how you do that. Again, we've said we have an enemy, but people are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. So we must be prepared to speak the truth of love, confronting sin or evil in appropriate ways. There will be false prophets and false teachers. The Bible talks about false prophets and false teachers. Uh, The people that want to take the truth of the gospel and just tweak it so it goes off there. People want to talk about Jesus but say, but you need a little bit more or you need a little bit less. And it's so attractive. We go, wow, that sounds really... And as you start listening, you start thinking, hey, this is taking me really away from Christ. This is honor and glorifying you, not him. This is making him more remote, less personal. There's a big term you hear people talking about. I think false teachers and false prophets talk about this term in our own culture. They talk about the cosmic Christ. The cosmic Christ. The gospel is cosmic in that it's universal. It goes beyond this world, obviously. Uh, out of Colossians, you know, Jesus, the visible expression of the invisible God, he holds all things in the cosmos together. But it also says in Philippians that he, he came into this world not holding on to his power as God, but became a servant, even dying on our behalf. So he is scary close. He's not far away and removed in some cosmic nothingness. And so you hear a term like cosmic Christ, and now if you're saying Christ is cosmic, he's Lord of all, you go, yeah, amen. But you hear somebody going with this cosmic Christ theme, and all of a sudden you're talking about, that can do anything because he's so out there, I can just do whatever I want right here. Well, this is a, this is a platonic idea. Plato invented this idea. And the Gnostics, the people who wrote uh, parallel literature, you see like the Da Vinci Code, that one of those books that when you start out reading it and you finish it, you're stupider than when you started you know, less than you, it's an exciting, fantastic read. At the end of it, you go, none of that makes sense. None of it's true. Wow, you know, I need two aspirin. The Gnostics uh, couldn't handle the idea that God was so close because the, the Platonic ideal wouldn't allow it. And then there were people in the church that said, you know, I, I get this grace thing. God likes to forgive. I love to sin. It's such a beautiful marriage. And so false teachers and false prophets, we don't go around saying, you're a false teacher, you're a false prophet. What we want to do is be aware that there are people 
who end up being functionally false teachers and false prophets. If you confront them, they're self-righteous. They go, well, if you knew more, you wouldn't be saying that. If you were more advanced and more, you know. Oh, you still believe in marriages, men and women? Come on, really? Seriously? Oh, that's so quaint. Wow, okay. And then it goes from there. You know, babies that are inconvenient? Mm-mm. Old people that are inconvenient? Don't need them. And you start thinking, wait, where does this go? Where does this eventually go? It goes in places that hypocrites love. They go to places where disciples say, I don't want to go there. And I can't stop you from going there. I don't want to become you in the process of trying to stop you from going there. But I will stand here, as as Paul said, stand firm. Don't be stubborn. Don't be dumb. Be open and resilient and resourceful, saying, is this the Word of God? And if so, in the context of the whole Word of God, where does this fit? And you will be called naive, you'll be called narrow, You'll be called any number of things. Why? Because that's an antagonistic voice calling you that. So we don't fear them, we don't fight them, but we prayerfully call them to the way of Jesus. Even as we call ourselves to the way of Jesus. And if somebody says, you know, um, how about you? You, you, you were right the way you, you answered that guy and the way you talked to that guy, but man, you were so offensive and mean. You crushed him, but Why? Oh, because I'd rather be right than love, that's why. Let's talk about that. Because they'll know we're Christians by our love. Now, we, we, we don't devalue or dilute the truth. Loving people never says, okay, fine, you can be a drug addict, I'm okay with that. It says, you're, you're a drug addict, I'm not okay with that because it's destroying you. But I love you, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you. But I won't participate in that. You can't sell drugs out of this home. You can't sell drugs to your brothers and sisters, uh, that's a no. Yeah, but I might have to live on the street. Then you'll have to live on the street, and I will be on the street with you, and I'm ready to get you off the street whenever you're ready to get off the street. See where this goes? Disciples are resourceful and resilient because they're not judging anybody. They're saying, I want to help somebody, and I don't want to help in a way that hurts. And so pretending that evil doesn't exist or that we can avoid it by ignoring it is naive, and it's more than naive, it's ungodly. Because God didn't ignore evil. He came into the world to meet it head on. And even when he was being crucified by the people who were doing the evil on our behalf, we were among them, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, but they really don't know what they're doing ultimately. That's profound. That is called vulnerability, because I don't like being in that place. Am I letting this go too far? No, you can't control it. Jesus' disciples come, they say, hey, you know, um," he tells a parable. These disciples come to the, ma- the, the, the master and they say, hey, somebody went out into the field of wheat and they planted these weeds called tares, T-A-R-E-S, that look just like wheat when they're little. Should we try to pluck them out? And the master said, you know, you can't. You can't tell what they are, you're going to pull out the wheat. Let's just wait for the harvest. So we don't let people perpetuate their sin and evil if we can help it. But at some point, uh, they're doing what they're going to do. So not speaking up about evil or sin perpetuates false harmony and enabling behavior. Now if somebody you love said, I am going to do these things that are absolutely opposite of you, what are you going to do about it? You're going to say, I can't do much about what you're going to do. The only thing I control is that I love you. I will always love you. I will always care about you. I will always be for you. I will always be with you. But I'm not going to confirm that affirm that, 
support that, encourage that, or agree. Well, then you don't love me. That's how you feel about it. Okay, but I do love you, and I don't love this because it's destroying you. I do not love the things that destroy you. This is a hard place to live. We've all lived there, and if not, we will live there. The people dear to us. And um, sometimes those people are followers of Jesus, and they're doing things that you go, this is not of Jesus. We'll get to that in a moment. I love the way Edmund Burke, uh, who's a British uh, philosopher, uh, very influential person, a man of faith, and he said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And he was talking to the church, the church in England. He's saying, the good people can hide behind religious formalities and religious rituals, but unless they're out in the street with people where they really live, they're, they're complicit in what's going on. So if somebody said, you know, uh, I heard you were helping out prostitute. Yeah, she had a horrible boss. I helped her get a, a better one. You know, doing what? Well, she's in a different neighborhood now. And you go, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, that was not a solution. You're now complicit in that. Versus, I helped her get a different and better job. I got her into the safe home. She's learning some new skills. She's learning to do this. She's got, wow, whoa. Bring us to the third point and wrap it up with this. The world needs people who can see things clearly in Christ. Are you one of them? The world is in desperate need of less judges, more disciples. Disciples are people who are learning to see things clearly in Christ. Are you one of them? Do you want to be one of them? From the day you say yes, you are one of them. The moment you say yes, that's who I am and who I want to be, then you are one. And, and, and so, uh, let me ask you a, a qualifying question. Do you judge others or do you see them, see them, really see them, and accept them as one imperfect person to another? Do you say, as they say, I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread? Is there a humility and a vulnerability in the way that you are seeing people in the world? If you're telling somebody about hell and you're gleeful about it or cocky about it or arrogant about it, you're missing the point. If you're telling somebody about hell, they say, hey, is there really hell? And could I actually end up there? If I don't have a sense of a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes and a, and a catch in my voice, then I'm not really understanding the severity of the reality of hell. We have become so glib and so uncomfortable talking about these things. You go, no, everybody goes there, including your dog. You know, everybody will be there. And you go, well, okay, but then what, what is that, what's all that language in the Bible about? But the world needs people who can see things clearly in Christ. Will we be one of them? You don't have to like what people do, but you can treat them redemptively. That is, Jesus loves you and died for you. Now, if you say this to a person who's resistant, it's going to sound trite and a cliche, and they're going to be annoyed. I know a young man, a friend of a friend, he lives in a different city and from a godly family, he's grown up hearing it, and he's, so, he's just very vociferously rejected Christ. I pray for him uh, throughout the month. I would never call him up and say, hey man, I just want you to know I've been praying for you. I don't know, I don't know him that well, and it would be offensive to him. He would feel judged by me saying that. You go, well then save your, save your effort. Instead, I, can, I don't have to ask for his permission. I can unauthorizedly pray for him. It's an unauthorized mission of prayer. 
You don't have to like what people do, but you can treat them redemptively. And this is what I love what Paul says to the Galatians. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say your fellow believers. It says your neighbor, the people proximate to you in your world. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. And then Jesus instructs us, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This follows later in this same passage about judging. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And so what do we do? Well, we exchange our hurt and our anger that somebody's doing something wrong and evil and hurtful to us and to them. We exchange, we let go of that right to be angry and hurt. We process it appropriately, but then we let go of it as as a weapon that we use over them that fuels our judgment of them. And we exchange it for empathy and compassion and humility. This is every parent's burden. If your kids are doing something that you didn't raise them to do, you cannot control them, but you can't influence them by praying for them, by simply loving and accepting them. That's powerful. And if somebody said, hey, did you go to the dark side? Are you accepting this now? Is it normative? You go, no, no, no. The norm I work on is the revolution of love that Jesus initiated when he rose again from the dead. It's a, it, this is a spiritual stronghold I'm facing. The ordinary weapons of the world don't work here. It's a spiritual intervention on their behalf that I'm doing here. And they don't have to know about it until they're ready and open. So this is about direction, not perfection. We're not, we're not perfect yet in Christ. We are being perfected in Christ, and we're directionally going to that place of perfection. And that's why Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he goes, if you could just see what you're going to look like, it would blow your mind. So this is about direction, not perfection. Expecting perfection does what? Sets us up to judge. You're not perfect yet. I'm really disappointed in you. I knew this guy who, he's he's smoking two packs a day, and I saw him, and I said, hey man, how's it going? Uh, I know you want to stop smoking. He goes, man, I'm down to one pack. Now, the response could have been, what a loser. Really? One pack? Versus, hey man, that's awesome. Keep it up. Way to go. Yeah, man, I'm really, I'm really encouraged. I was delivered from heroin like that, but now the smoking thing is taking me a long time. You go, yeah, I know. Sometimes it does. So the good news is that we will be perfect someday because Jesus Christ is at work in us, perfecting us. Perfection in the Bible means complete. Atelios, it's being completed and fulfilled. And that's why Paul can say, we don't yet know what we will be, but we know we will be like him. So remember, you've got friends in high places pulling for you and cheering you on. You've got the Lord and the heavenly host saying, peace on earth, goodwill to men. I've got great news for you. We're here. We're for you. You read that chapter 11 of Hebrews, all these incredible people of faith. It says, there's this great cloud of witnesses cheering you on. I like the way James, Jesus' stepbrother, concludes his wise letter to struggling Christians. It's James toward the back of the Bible. It's one of those letters. And he says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Wow, what did she say that got you to turn back? Nothing, she was just there. Hey, what did he do that finally got you to see the error of your ways? He was just with me. 
It was just for me. I couldn't get away from it. It just bugged me. Because he was kind to me and compassionate toward me. And if we got in a discussion, he'd give me the reasons why he did what he did and believe what he believed, but he never did it in a way that used, that weaponized it. I resented him until I realized he's a gift from God. So this is a beautiful expression of life together in Christ that James describes. You are forgotten? No. You are not forgotten. You're hopeless? No. You are not hopeless. You're not forgotten. You're not hopeless. We, the people of God, are ready and willing to help, not judge, guide, not push away, comfort and care for, not condemn. Walking together in the Lord, bearing one another's burdens, is how we do heaven on earth until the Lord returns. So Lord Jesus, this is our prayer, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, the guidance of your word, the incredible love and support and encouragement of your people, uh, we want to live into this new identity, this new understanding of who we are in you. Beloved children and disciples, learning from you how to be the best version of us. Uh, This is your will. Heaven uh, as it is on earth, earth as it is in heaven. We thank you and praise you for this in your high and your holy name. Amen. Of offering, offering you to the Lord. And if you want to give financially, there's a box there, you can mail it in or whatever. We appreciate your support, we need it, but this is for you to offer you to him.
Give us your whole heart. My hope is in the blood of Jesus. I know who I am because of who you Uh, do you know who you are? You are a beloved child of God. Uh, and God wants you to know Him in real time, in the real life, the actual life you're living right now. Uh, if you've never accepted Him into your life, never invited Him into your life, never submitted your life to Him, do it today. It's a very simple prayer. Lord, I invite you to come into my life. Uh, I, I hear you calling my name. I want you. I don't know really where it goes, but I want you to be the one leading me there. Maybe you've been far from him. You've been frustrated all week saying, I don't know where my faith really fits anymore. This is a day to just to be renewed. Say, Lord, I remember now. It's you telling me who I am because of who you are. Uh, maybe it's going super well for you and you're thinking, oh my gosh, when's the shoe going to drop? Don't worry about it. The fact is that you are in him and with him now and forever. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk with him now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If we can pray for you, go right around to the prayer garden. There's some people who'd love to pray with you. If you want to get something to eat or drink, uh, jump into the welcome room there as you go out to your right. And have a great time getting to know some of those wonderful people you're sitting around. Yeah.